Good morning, Trinity Woodcroft. Today I'll be doing the Bible reading, and I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 to 15. I think you will have heard this one before. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. There we are. Now, um, it'd be good to pray uh, as we come to uh, help ask God to help us to understand uh, what's at the heart of this prayer. Merciful Heavenly Father, we do just uh, come now. This is possibly quite a familiar uh, part of Scripture to many of us here this morning. If it's not, we do pray it would become familiar. Father, we um, pray that you would help all of us to come to know and see some of the the riches that are here for us, that you would refresh and freshen us uh, in this part of your word this morning. And we pray this, Father, uh, for our own good, for the sake of the lost, and Father, for your glory. Amen. Well, in preparing for today, here's what I've been wrestling with. Why don't I pray more? Uh, In John chapter 16, verses 23 to 24, Jesus teaches that biblical Christian prayer is asking the Father in Jesus' name for stuff. In particular, asking for what he longs to give us, which happens to be the help that every human being desperately needs. So why don't I pray more to God, like my grandson, Ari? Here's a little video, just to uh, let us know. More. More what? Pie. Pie. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So he's developed the habit of not just praying before he eats. He'll just stop and say, oh, pray, pray, in the middle of eating. And it got me thinking, when did I last stop in the middle of me eating (laughs) to pray more uh, or just stop in the middle of anything, for that matter? Out of the mouth of babes, as they say. Now, what I love about um, being a part of BCA, um, their mission is preaching Christ and their first commitment is to rely on God in prayer. If if you read that in the inside cover of the prayer notes that you've got this morning. Um, and again, it's got me thinking, like, what's driving my thinking that my to-do lists, my agendas are just more important, more urgent than stopping to pray, that I'm too busy to pray? I want to suggest it takes us to, to something of the heart of why Jesus patented these 52 words, which we've come to know as the Lord's Prayer. I've called it the Lord's Patented Prayer because he painted it, uh, to, gave it to the prayer that we pray. The opening address... And these six petitions, they take us to the heart of God and his gospel purposes for humanity. Jesus is teaching his disciples what we most need from God each day and what he has given. Now, uh, just an upfront sort of um, 
disqualifier. There is a library of books written on this prayer. You may have read some. And this is by far not the, the final or exhaustive last word on this prayer. But what I want to do, uh, which is always good to do with the, with the part of Scripture, is to put it in its context, in its setting. It's crucial we recognise that this prayer comes to us before Jesus' cross and resurrection. It comes to us as part of Jesus teaching his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. The key question Jesus is answering in the Sermon on the Mount is, what is the greater righteousness needed to enter the kingdom of heaven? And how on earth do you get it? So, for example, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The prayer is given as a corrective to how Gentiles and the most biblically literate religious leaders of the day were hypocritically um, praying in such a way, thinking that somehow that God would reward them for their public prayers, their long prayers, their big worded prayers. Jesus' corrective in the sermon is that, is that for those there and for any of us here this morning who come to God with the sort of a star um, chart approach to God, you know, I do this, God gives me a little star, I get enough stars, you know, I'll get into heaven. Um, this idea that, you know, I do this, I'll be rewarded with entry into, into the kingdom of heaven. Well, this is profoundly not what the Bible teaches about how we uh, have a relationship with God and enter into heaven. We can never be good enough. We can't earn God's acceptance of us by keeping rules. And so in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus instructs this. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, not mine, but his, and all these things will be added or given to you. Now, many of us here this morning will know that Jesus is God's gospel righteousness, given for us, the unrighteous, to bring us to God. 1 Peter 3.18 The Lord's patented prayer is given to disciples then for them to pray for the fulfilment of God's new covenant promises there in the Old Testament. Um, and of course, Jesus is the fulfilment of all those promises. Jesus is the righteousness of God we are to seek. And this is why Gary Miller says in his new book, Calling on the Name of the Lord, A Biblical Theology of Prayer, that Christian biblical prayer is praying in Jesus' name, asking God to come through on what he has already promised. It's how people in the Old Testament prayed, people in Jesus' day, and certainly how we are to pray today. Asking God to come through on what he has already promised. And so what Jesus is doing here is training his disciples to pray, training them about those new covenant promises, what it means to be a child of God's grace, how we should pray in light of Jesus and those promises. Um, a Christian who lived a few hundred years ago wrote this, through the gospel, our hearts are trained to call on God's name. So if you want to become a better prayer, well, get more familiar with the gospel. We've got to be trained to pray. And so as we begin looking at this prayer this morning, I want to begin with what I've called the gospel God of prayer. Our Father in heaven. Now in heaven is a way of Jesus saying that God is creator, we are the creature on earth. God is from everlasting to everlasting, we are dust to dust. 
God is the sovereign creator of the universe who holds everything together. But God is not distant. In Jesus Christ, his own son, God has come near that we might know God as our father in heaven. Our father, not my father, but our father. A reminder that God's eternal purpose is to gather a people, not a person. Jesus' mission is to build a church. Through the gospel message, Jesus is calling people from all nations to come and know God and enjoy him forever. And so, for example, the Apostle John, uh, he was shown this vision, which he records for us in Revelation chapter 7. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Our Father. God is building a people. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus refers to the disciples, God, as your Father. In fact, 13 times he says, your Father, in the Sermon on the Mount. Seven of those references are before this prayer. The your is plural. That is, the Father of yous all. Now, in Jewish writings of the day, it was incredibly rare to non-existent that a, a pious Jew would call on God as their father. But as the son of the father, God was uniquely Jesus' father. But here, stunningly, Jesus is teaching his disciples to think of God as their father. Now, I'm not sure what your experience uh, of being a father or having a father has or is is like for you. Um, One thing... I think I can confidently say is that none of them have been perfect. And sorry to sort of prick your bubble, dads, but you are not the perfect father. (laughs) So we pray, Abba, Father. It's a word that, it's Aramaic, it's somewhere between daddy and upper, which means, well, what is that? I'm a part, is that right? Mother's father. Like it's, that, it's a term of, um, of love, of affection. Um, but it's in no way meant to belittle who God is in his awesome majesty as the God who is in heaven. But because by faith in Jesus we are adopted into God's family, we become God's beloved children in that family. And God becomes our father in heaven. See, praying our father, it cuts across my sort of me first tendencies what can i get out of church today i wonder you know will i want to go for that dinner what can i get out of that like it's our father it cuts through all of that our father reminds me that my chief concerns always as a child of god my chief concerns always in gathering on a sunday should be for our daily bread our sin for our temptations i was talking to a parent of a teenager last few weeks they recently visited a trinity church for the first time i'm not going to tell you which one i'm not even going to tell you if it was this one the parents were desperate for her uh they wanted her to, to, to reconnect to go to church and they were so thankful when she finally did she went to church that sunday only to come home confused and disappointed 
Because from the moment she arrived to when she left, not one person talked to her, engaged her. And naturally, the parents, they were smashed, they crushed. They couldn't believe it. And so we pray, our Father. The rest of the Lord's patented prayer is six gospel petitions asking God to fulfill his new covenant promises in Jesus. I loved uh, the small print at the bottom of that first song we sang this morning. Um, uh, all about Jesus music. <laughs> That's the mob who wrote that song. I love it. All about Jesus music. This prayer is all about Jesus, just like the rest of the Bible. Um, and so those first three gospel asks are to know God and his gospel purposes. The first gospel ask, hallowed be your name. Literally sort of let your name be kept holy. Let your name be treated with reverence. Now, if you turn to a book like Hebrews... It works very hard to teach us that through Jesus' sinless obedience and his death on the cross, Jesus has once for all time perfectly hallowed or glorified his Father's name for us. See, what does Jesus pray um, in the hearing of his disciples in John chapter 17, verse 4? Father, I've glorified you on earth, having accomplished or finished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus' last words on the cross in John's Gospel is, it is finished, chapter 19, verse 30. Think with me. If Jesus is the perfect worship leader we need, if Jesus is how we worship God perfectly in his perfect worship, if Jesus has perfectly hallowed and glorified God in his sinless, obedient life and death on the cross... It does raise a question, doesn't it? How do we glorify or hallow God's name? Well, Jesus, very helpfully, answered that very question in John chapter 6, verse 29. Responding to people, Jesus, Jesus, what is the work of God that we must do? Believe in the one God has sent. We glorify and hallow God's name by believing in the Son. By listening to the Son. We're told to do that twice in the Gospels. Baptism, transfiguration. By loving the Son. Loving Jesus as our leader. And by living for Jesus and his kingdom priorities and purposes. Well, that brings us to the second Gospel ask. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Of course, we we know that Jesus um, begins his public ministry. Repent and believe the Gospel for the kingdom of heaven is near Matthew chapter 4 verse 17 or the kingdom of God is near Matthew 1 no, so Mark 1 14 15 God's kingdom is where God's king is When a person hears and believes the gospel of God's king so God's kingdom comes upon them comes near to them God's kingdom rule comes upon them as the spirit of the living Christ comes to dwell in them and they become a a child of God. Becoming a Christian, you become credited or clothed in the beautiful, perfect, greater righteousness of Jesus. A righteousness that their father sees 
and declares us to be blameless forever before him, guaranteeing us entry into God's kingdom. That's at the heart of Christianity. This greater righteousness is credited to us by faith in the Son. It's not something we have to or will ever have to earn. And so while we wait for Jesus to return and the consummation of his kingdom, so we pray your kingdom come, that God's preached word might be believed upon, so that God's life-giving kingdom rule might crash in on people and they might be run over by the, the grace and the love and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, that they're saved from perishing in hell to eternal life with God. Which brings us, as you can see, to Jesus' third ask that we should pray for, is your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the book of Hebrews, again, we're told, aren't we, this sinless, obedient life has once for all time atoned for all of our sin, for all time, for those who believe. And so Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, Father, not my will, but your will will be done the father's will was that suffering and going to his cross and what might it mean for us to pray in light of the cross to pray father your will be done on earth as it is in heaven the way of jesus cross teaches us that when we pray your will be done well one thing we are definitely not asking god to give us is a happier life a more comfortable life, a healthier life, a more prosperous life, or a more at ease life. Does not the cross teach us when we pray, Father, your will be done? That we're asking the Heavenly Father to help us to give up our earthly rights now, to help us let go of the worldly pursuits, to live for God's kingdom priorities, to be willing to take up our cross each day, follow after Jesus, to trust more in his word, trusting it really is the It's the only wisdom, the only way to life with God. And that life is kept for us by the risen king at his father's right hand. It's kept safe and secure for us. Which is why we can let go of things now. Because of this sure inheritance of resurrection life that is there for us waiting. Now here's an example of what it might mean to tie the first three parts of this prayer together, the first three asks, what, what might it mean? What could it look like? Here's an example of what it meant for Betty and John Stam. It's quite an um, extreme example, but yet it's not. John and Betty Stam, they left home, family and friends, to take the message of Christ to the people of China in the 1930s. In 1934, they'd only been there a couple of years. They were arrested, they refused to renounce Jesus, they were marched through the village that they'd gone to live in, in chains, and they were killed. Years previously, Betty had written this prayer in her diary, a prayer that she regularly prayed. Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept your will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all, utterly to you, to be yours forever. Fill me and seal me with your Holy Spirit. Use me as you will. Send me where you will and work out your will in my life at any cost now and forever. Amen. 
dare we think of writing a prayer like that for ourselves, making a prayer like this, a prayer for ourselves every day? Well, what are these last three gospel petitions in the Lord's Prayer? Well, the Lord is teaching his disciples to pray for God's provision, God's pardon and God's protection. These, we really need these things, that we might enter and participate in God's kingdom. So the fourth ask here, God's provision, give us this day our daily bread. Literally, give us our bread for the day. It begs the question, doesn't it? Which day is Jesus talking about? Jesus' disciples, I think they're first reminded that we are dust. Everything we are, everything we have, it's gift from God, from a loving creator God. We are so more utterly dependent on God um, every day than, than we can ever know. For our most basic needs, and such is God's goodness, he provides for those needs even without asking. But who is this Jesus again who's teaching the disciples to pray? Oh, the Apostle Paul wrote this about him. In Jesus, through Jesus, by Jesus and for Jesus, we exist and have our being. Colossians 1, 15 to 17. All that we take for granted in life is given and provided by God in, through and by Jesus. But stunningly, the why am I here question, why did I get out of bed this morning? Why did I come to church this morning? What is the purpose of my life? Well, it's summed up by two words in the Bible. For Jesus. For Jesus. And I reckon we've got to keep saying this to ourselves. For Jesus. And so we pray, give us our bread for the day, that we might live for Jesus. I want to suggest that the bread that we more urgently need each day is more than a loaf of Helga's from Coles. It's actually tied to the day that really matters. The day that Jesus is talking about. The day that Jesus spent most of his time talking about in the Gospels. The day when every human being will stand before Jesus as judge. The day when we will either hear, well done, good and faithful servant, or away from me, I never knew you. That this bread that Jesus is talking is, 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 I think, confirmed by Jesus in John chapter 6, verses 27, uh, 57 to 58. He writes, As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. That's just one of many examples from the New Testament. Jesus' word is the daily bread we need even more than the loaf of Helga's. It is the bread of eternal life. To know it, believe it, love it and do it. Lord, give us this bread for the day. And that brings us to Jesus' fifth gospel ask. Because at the heart of the gospel, which we've been singing about, talking about all morning, is the forgiveness of the cross. Forgive us our debts, as also we have forgiven our debtors. One of my Christian writers that I love reading and listening to is Paul Tripp. Um, he says this, that there's a form of debt in all relationships 
far more dangerous than financial debt. It's relational debt. And so Jesus gives his disciples this prayer to pray for God's new covenant promises to be fulfilled for the forgiveness of their sin. Jesus did fulfill it when he breathed his last on his cross. He's going to go on and teach that there's no other sort of Christian than the forgiven kind. There is no other sort of Christian than the one who, like their father in heaven, forgives as the Lord has forgiven them. And so Jesus teaches just after this prayer, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, what's this? Is this like you can't have it both ways? Is Jesus teaching that I have to forgive? And if I don't forgive, God won't forgive me? So in the end, it is up to me? Well, interestingly, uh, in Matthew 18... He tells a parable that has become known as the unmerciful servant. It's about uh, a guy who owes the king of the land an, an, an extraordinary amount of money. You're talking millions and millions and millions of dollars. There's no hope that he's got of ever paying it back. And he's forgiven the whole debt. But then the king finds out that this guy has gone off. And a few weeks later, he's found a guy who's in debt to him and owes him, you know, $1,000, a minuscule amount compared to what he owed this king. Gets him by the scruff of the neck and threatens him and, you know, the king finds out. He throws this guy in jail. Now, what this parable is teaching is that a child of the father in his kingdom who has experienced God's lavish, extravagant, inexhaustible, undeserved mercy and forgiveness, undeserved, for the immeasurable debt that we owe God, the debt of our own sin. There is no tape measure or laser measurer that is long enough, strong enough to, to measure how big our debt of sin is against God. And yet God, because he's merciful, not because we're worthy, he sent his son to so that we can be forgiven this debt. Jesus is teaching here that God's children must forgive those who sin against them, not to earn God's forgiveness, but to show that they're already forgiven, just to show out how true identity as children of God, to show out that, yeah, 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 that, that's my Father in heaven, the really merciful one, <laughs> not the grumpy one. When we show mercy and forgive, especially to those who don't deserve it, even if they're our enemies, we are displaying the beautiful undeserved mercy of our Father in heaven. Friends, is not the cross of Jesus giving up all of his rights, not just some. He gives up all of his rights in becoming a man and dying on a cross. To suffer and die and pay the debt for your sin and mine. See, suffering it like Jesus, suffering it for us, giving up our right to be angry, giving up our right of retribution, like Jesus gave up his rights for our forgiveness. Doesn't the cross teach us what a terribly hard and costly work it is for God to forgive all of the debt? of all people against him for all time. 
Doesn't the cross teach us that forgiving someone from the heart, which is the last phrase of Jesus in that parable in Matthew 18, forgiving from the heart, this surely is the hardest and most costly work we ever do as a human being. Yet it will always be the most beautiful and divine work, the most God-honouring work, the most heaven-on-earth work we do to show out our true identity as the children of God and to hallow and glorify our Heavenly Father. And it brings us briefly to Jesus' sixth gospel ask for God's protection. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You ever wonder why this one comes straight after the forgiveness one? Now, Satan means adversary. He's God's greatest adversary and heirs. His other name being the devil, the father of lies. We see in Genesis 3 how seductive it is, how easy it is to tell myself so, (laughs) uh, deceive myself in order to justify that it's going to be okay, there's not going to be consequences, not going to be destructive, you know, we do it ourselves anyway, I mean, everyone else is doing it. The story of Satan coming into God's presence to accuse and condemn Job in the book of Job, it teaches us that accusing and condemning us before God because of our sin, this is how Satan enslaves us, it's how he destroys us destroys your relationships with God and with people. Jesus' temptation of Satan in the wilderness, the reports of Jesus delivering people, they run up, they're run over by the power of evil in their lives. And along comes Jesus and with a word, he sets them free. And it teaches us that only Jesus can deliver us from the power of the evil one. What's the connection between forgiveness and temptation? Between forgiveness and the evil one, the Apostle Paul nails it, literally, at the end of Colossians chapter 2. And you, Christians, who were once dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Can you hear what Jesus is saying, what Paul's saying here? At the cross, not only was all the debt paid, but all the things that Satan uses to enslave us and come into the throne room of heaven and accuse you before him. That guy, that woman, no way, she's such a sinner. Look what she's done. She, you're holy. She deserves your judgment. You see, this, well, that's all gone. It's, it's all been paid for. Satan has nothing to condemn the Christian with because of the cross. And so as we finish thinking through how these last three asks, daily bread, forgiveness, and, and free us from temptation, how are they all connected? How might we pray them today for the day? I don't have to even try and explain to you 
the harm and the hurt of sin. How it can just lacerate and cut so deeply. It, it, it can reach into parts of our lives and, and twist and just... And, and the way it, it can affect us. The, the resentment, the anger and the hate that we feel so justified against the people who hurt us like this. And then there's all that, just the hardness and disappointments of life in this world. Think about it. You, you know, you might be single, wanting to be married. You might be married, wanting to have children. You might have lost a child or a loved one to COVID or cancer or an accident. It's so easy and it feels so natural and right and proper to get angry and to stay angry and resent that person. And whenever you hear their name mentioned because of what they did to you, oh, that acid of bitterness, bile just rises up in your mouth and it's so easy, it's so tempting. Which is exactly what our adversary, the Satan, wants to happen. It's why Jesus teaches us to pray. Give us the daily bread for this day, which is Jesus' word. Give us, Jesus, give me the word I need for today to instruct me, to correct and rebuke me, to strengthen me in the knowledge of your victory over it all, your victory over Satan, your victory over my sin, the victory over my death. Only your word can remind me of this victory. Only your word can expose the, the lies and the mischief of Satan and the world whispering in my ears. Because this word, this daily word that we pray for, reminds us of the impossible. Remember what Jesus says to Peter? What? Rich people can't get into heaven? That's Who can get in? Well, what's impossible for man is possible for God. And at the cross, Jesus is doing the impossible, isn't he? Jesus can make the impossible, what seems impossible to you and me, to forgive that person. Possible. We can and must forgive the unforgivable. This is not an option, says Jesus. And then we've got the world saying, what? That is ridiculous, you idiot. That is foolish. You're going to give them for what they've done to you. But this, of course, is the love and the wisdom and the power of the cross. The gospel of forgiveness is the only power in the universe able to extinguish Satan's arrows. To, to extinguish and wash away the guilt and the shame that, that can build up. To save us from the anger, the resentment, the bitterness that I promise will disrupt and destroy your relationships. And it will eventually destroy your relationship with God as your Father in heaven. And so as I finish, where we begin, out of the mouth of babes, more, pray, pray, more. 